Hey everybody, this is Chelsea Schaefer and Caitlin Gustav, and this is The Score, the official podcast of the sport of team roping. This is the Team Roping Journal's semi-weekly podcast, highlighting the team roping industry's top talents and influencers through stories that inspire and connect ropers. We sit down with ropers from the professional ranks, as well as industry icons and producers to delve into topics that make the team roping world tick. This is season two. It will feature even deeper interviews, storytelling, and issue-based coverage, and we are so excited you're here. This episode is brought to you by our awesome partners at Softride Equine Comfort Boots. I'm going to tell you more about them at the episode break in the middle of the show, but for now, visit softrideboots.com to check out all of their offerings. Jackal, the larger-than-life legend of a horse ridden by greats from 15-year-old Travis Graves to Corey Kuntz, Michael Jones, Alan Bach, Jade Corkill, and Jim Ross Cooper. The unregistered Dunn Gelding earned over $2 million in his storied career, carried Bach and Corkill to gold buckles, and earned worldwide fame as the greatest horse to ever pull back, and I mean pull back, on a steer. We've told his story for years, and with his death in December of 2018, we embarked on a project to tell his life story, complete with video of some of his biggest wins, with our partners at Soft Ride Equine Comfort Boots, which Jackal wore throughout the end of his competitive career. But this podcast, it's Jackal like you've never heard him before. We dive deeper into this icon story with the help of Travis Graves, Jake Corkill, and Corey Coons. The story starts in Jay, Oklahoma, when a teenage Travis Graves, who with his dad helped buy and sell horses for a lot of local families, came to ride this outlaw buckskin. Jackal came from Ryan Barnes. Uh, he's from Benita, Oklahoma, and that was pretty close to Jay, Oklahoma, where I grew up, about 30 minutes from my house. And um, I, start, I think I started riding when I was 14 or 15 years old. I want to say it was like 1998. I mean, I kind of remember the year. He was really broke. They were really good horsemen. He came from a killer pen. Um, they bought him out of cell barn as a killer pen. Ryan Barnes, they, they were great horsemen, and um, they broke him and got him going, and he was really a broke horse. When I got him, he was a little bit bad in the box as far as, like, if he put his head to the right, he would rear out. But over time, you know, it went away, and you could tell he had all the, the ability. He would stop so hard sometimes that, that it felt like he wasn't stopping, you know. Back in those days, he would slide forever. Like, I remember one time I had a rope, and I, I roped, and I, and it felt like he was kept going forward. But I look back, and there was, I mean, he was just dragging it so far. When I was 15 and I first saw him, he was so cool looking. You know, he, he, his mane was long. It was even longer back then. Um, he had the, done uh, streaks down it. He, he looked so cool. He kind of looked kind of like a, a Mustang-looking deal. He wasn't as wide back then as as he was later, but had a long tail and just a solid done. Uh, he was he was really cool looking. He looked like like a heel horse. I mean, when you saw him. But Travis knew the horse probably wouldn't stick around, and eventually he went down the road. Luckily, he ended up in the capable hands of Tyler Magnus, just for a short while. But Tyler noticed that Corey Coons was practically afoot, and he offered the healer, nicknamed Dog, this horse called Jackal. In 1998 is when Iceman died, and from that point. I started buying and selling quite a few horses, trying to find that next horse that I could actually win on. And I went on and made the NFR a couple more times. And then I ended up uh, talking to Tyler Magnus one day and he owned Jackal at the time. And I had seen 
him riding maybe at Houston and somewhere else and he looked a little bit green but he looked I was partial to Dunn's anyway and so I kind of liked the way he looked well uh, I was at Austin at the rodeo and Tyler come up to me and asked me how my horse situation was and I said well you've been watching me at these rodeos so you know how my horse situation is I need one and he said, well, I think you would get along with that little Dunn. And he called him Chicho. That was his name, uh, Little Chicken or something like that uh, was what that meant. But anyway, he said, I think you'd get along with that little Dunn. You ought to try him. And I said, all right, I'd love to. And so I tried him at a Rope America roping down in San Antonio. And uh, I think I won first and third did great on him the very first day and he felt a little green and he reared up out of the box one time and walked out on his hind legs and I could tell you know there was some little issues that um, he had some attitude about him but he felt good um, I roped good on him and so I ended up buying him from Tyler that day and then our journey began um, I roped with Mike Servey uh, the first year that I rode Jackal. And so I got to where, which I lived at Sudan and I didn't have, I didn't have an arena. I didn't go down to the neighbor's house. I wasn't close to any of the guys I roped with. And so I kind of just had this routine that I went through and it worked on him and it worked on Switchblade where I just rode. I would go out and I, if you've ever seen Sudan, Texas, there's a lot of flat country and you can't see the end of it. And so I would just go ride. And uh, the more I exercised him, long trotted him, rode up and down through ditches and just messed with him, the more he got to know me and the more I knew him. And that was almost, to me, looking back, better than going and trying to run you know, 10 steers a day on him because all that would do is piss him off and then it would turn into a fight. And so I think the route that I ended up taking with him, which wasn't by choice, it was just the way it was, I think that was good for him and it molded him into, and it kind of kept his, his mind free of backing in the box and going as hard as he could go daily and then when you put him in the trailer and took him somewhere and it was for money, and, and I'm, I'm sure I have a different feel when I'm competing than I do when I'm practicing because it's all about me winning when I'm competing and it's more about me trying to make my horse this perfect horse when I'm practicing. And so, you know, that I think through all the things that kind of happened and the way uh, I, I spent a lot of time riding him outside of the arena. I think helped him through those little bit green years where he was getting molded into the horse that he was gonna become. And it, as far as his name goes, uh, I was trying to figure out a name that I liked and that kind of meant something. And so everyone calls me the dog. And so I, I, uh, I run across a, uh, a scripture in the Bible that talked about the jackal, that in the end times there'll be these 
jackals, these dogs that are vicious, that are, you know, kind of have this aura about them that they're mean and, and that kind of dog. Well, that's the way jackals attitude is. He was, he would pin his ears. He, uh, I had a little pit bull puppy that I got and he, uh, stomped him and broke his leg and he just kind of had that attitude but so anyway that's where I started calling him Jackal and it stuck and and became pretty famous for uh, everyone knew who you were talking about when you talk call the name Jackal. I, d I never really thought of that horse as a great horse when I had him. I, uh, I started with him and he was skinny, little, wanted to quarter when he stopped, wanted to rear up and walk out of the box every now and then. He was kind of a little outlaw and would, and would pin his ears and bite people. And he never did that to me. And to this day, well, I know he's gone now, but even guys that owned him after me, I could walk up to him and he never, he wouldn't pin his ears and act, and act like he was gonna bite me. But other guys, well, I was roping with Matt Tyler at the Texas Circuit Finals one year and we had made our run and I was loosening Jackal up and Matt was standing over and he was loosening up Big Daddy, his horse that was a famous horse that was really good. And all of a sudden Jackal just reached and reached right under where you got that little bit of fat right underneath your your armpit and just got a hold of him and just thunk and just bit the crap out of him. And that was just, that was kind of the way he was. And I had heard about, like you might be warming up and somebody right up next to you and he just, just act like he's gonna bite you. And he just kind of had that, that attitude about him, but it, uh, he was just a tough, gritty, horse and I won on him and so it I, I loved him for that but uh, I never really thought of him as as great in the process but then afterwards uh, seeing Alan Bach win a world title on him seeing Jade win a world title on him seeing all the success at all the different places that all the different guys that rode him had then you know, hindsight's always so much different than when you're in the middle of it and going through it. But, you know, he he was not ever one that I thought I couldn't live without, and that's why I sold him. And I sold him for a lot of money. But uh, I, th I think he probably, as much as he won over his career, he uh, he maybe got sold the most times for the most amount of money that any heel horse has ever done it was you know it was pretty neat to see that he was so instrumental in uh helping certain guys win big stuff in his career corey sold the horse to michael jones in 2006. jones had borrowed jackal back in 2004 at the national finals rodeo where he and clay tryon paired up to win the average and set an nfr earnings record jones let alan bach borrow jackal at the nfr in 2006 where bach went on to win a gold buckle Jones rodeoed almost exclusively on Jackal and won the George Strait on him in 2008.
Michael says that he wrote him the best out of all the guys that had him. And, and I, I'll agree with that to a certain extent, but I'll also disagree a little bit because I, I felt like I wrote him great for a long time. But then I got to a point that the horse stopped so hard and knew me so well. And my kind of the, at that time, the way I set my shot up, I basically threw in the same spot all the time, all the time. And so he just got to where it was hard for me to actually get by him toward the last, the last year or so that I had him. Well, then what that horse needed was he needed you to move him out and create some space to get momentum coming through the turn so that he wasn't as violent with his stop. He couldn't cheat you. He couldn't do any of that. And it was a matter of the feel of getting away from the cow a little, creating space and coming through it. And I don't like that. I don't like that feel. I like to press on the steer a little more. I like my horse to get down, really drag his butt and turn the corner and then come off and separate from the cow. And that's how I feel like I create horses that finish good. And that's, that's how I created the way Jackal stopped. But then it turned against me at the end where I didn't get by him as good. And I had bought Switchblade. And so then Switchblade became my number one and Jackal as great as he was, was my backup. And so knowing that he could very well be the best horse that someone else ever owned, that's why he became for sale. And when Michael got him, he rode him great. He, he fit like a glove. He, everything Michael wanted to do with his roping, that horse allowed him to do. And Michael's very talented, but I'll say, he was way better on that horse than he ever was on anything else. And so, and then, you know, Jade tends to get more space. Uh, Jim Cooper get more space. So everyone that had him after that, uh, even Alan Bach at the NFR, Alan's long, long armed and can rope out in front of him. All of those guys had the right idea of how to ride him and then it showed him off even more. So, yeah, Michael did ride him good. Jones' rodeo schedule slowed to a crawl, and he used Jackal while day working to Dr. Wheat Cattle. The horse got a few more years off before Jade Corkle entered his life and supercharged the horse's career that everyone had figured was over. Uh, when I got Jackal, he was, uh, he was already probably 20 years old, I guess, or 21. Nobody was real sure, but... My good horse, Caveman, I rode him almost everywhere that year. I probably, I want to say I rode him at every rodeo, but maybe three or four. And uh, at towards the end of the year, he kind of started getting, was acting weird a little bit. And I didn't really know what was wrong with him. And then uh, in the beginning of October, I guess I found out that he had uh, two hind suspensories that were torn. And so I didn't really have anything else at the time even to think about riding at the NFR. And... Uh, I honestly, I, I don't even know what made me think of it. I just, maybe we were watching NFR tapes one day and saw Jackal on there and I was like, man, I wonder what that horse is doing because uh, at that time, Michael hadn't really been rodeoing or anything. And uh, so I just called him up out of the blue one day and asked him, I first asked him if he would lease him uh, or if he was, I didn't know if he was sound. I didn't know if he had been riding him. I didn't know anything. So I just kind of out of the blue, just called him one day 
and uh, he told me that he hadn't really been riding him, but he said that he was sound, and if, if I wanted to, to lease him or try him, that I was more than welcome to, and uh, I guess I picked him up at the U.S. Finals, and I came home, uh, I guess I stayed back there for like a week, and I didn't even ride him when I was back there, and uh, that year I was in the Columbia River Circuit, and that's, uh, the finals was like mid-November, I guess, and it was in Redmond, Oregon, and so I got out here like a week before that, and I practiced on him maybe two times, and then uh, I went up there and rode him at the circuit finals, and we did good, caught all three, and uh, I just, it was something I guess you can't really prove, and it sounds kind of weird to say, but I just had this weird feeling that if I could get that horse, that I would, I had a chance, or I thought I was going to win it, win the world if I had that horse for some reason, and I don't really know what made me think that, or if it was even a realistic thought, but like deep down, I truly did think that. And so I had decided uh, that I was just gonna see if I could buy him. And he kind of didn't really wanna sell him at first. And we kind of went back and forth a little bit for a few days. And he finally, one day he said, all right, well, I'll go ahead and sell him to you. And he said, what's he worth to you? And I said, well, man, he's worth a gold buckle to me. So whatever that's worth. So we went back and forth again for a few days and finally decided on a price and it was a lot for a horse that was that old and didn't know how sound he was or anything, but I, uh, I just kind of made up my mind that if I could win the, the world, that whatever I'd won down there, I would give back for the gold buckle. So, and then I would still have the horse after. So if I got even, even close to what I paid for him or any check that I won, it would be just taking some off. And I would, if I would pay that, well, then I would definitely pay less for him. And uh, so I did it and it worked out the way I was hoping it would work out and just kind of one of those Cinderella stories, I guess. When I rode him at the NFR, uh, Michael told me, he goes, hey, be careful when you cinch him up because he's gonna, he's gonna try to run off with you. And so I 100% think absolutely no chance this is gonna happen. Like, cause I've rode him already somewhere and practiced on him. I'm like, he's trying to mess with me or do whatever. So I, I take it and just, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, I'll do all this stuff. But on the inside, I'm like, not even worried about it, this isn't gonna happen. So the very first night at the NFR, I was uh, just in the tunnel watching the bulldogging on the TV, facing towards the roping boxes, and they're getting kind of close to being done. So I cinch him up and I go to get on and <laughs> I get, like my left foot in the stirrup and when I stand up he wheels around to the left almost flips me over the front luckily I get my legs swung over and I'm kind of hunched over the saddle horn he goes to take off so I, I get rocked back I pull on the reins he shakes his head lunges well Dakota Kirchenslager is standing like this on his horse I land on the back of his horse with both front feet over the top, still pulling, trying to apologize to Dakota on the way by, slide off the back of his horse, and then go both hands on the reins all the way to the top of the tunnel. And that's a 100% true story, exactly how it went, and full speed up the tunnel, by the way. <laughs> and so I get up there. Luckily, I didn't lose my hat, still had part of my rope. Like, I was dragging my rope, kept my hat on, and I get to the top of the tunnel, and I remember just thinking, I'm like, whoa, like, what was that? And now everybody else is 
at the top of the tunnel. Like there's people blocking the tunnel so I don't leave and I don't really know what happened. I'm like, I'm looking around like, hi to everybody. So I ride back down there to apologize to Dakota and he's laughing like wasn't a big deal to him. Probably the best guy I could have run into was him. And I just remember thinking, I wasn't, I was blanked out during, but afterwards I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like he, he wasn't kidding. Cause he told me, this is when he was telling me, Hey, this horse is like, a, he knows when it's game time. Like he, he's telling me everything that I've, I've already told you about him being like a person. And even myself knowing how he was and getting to watch him his whole career, I'm thinking to myself, it can't be really like that. Like there's no way that he's really like that. And so then he's telling me all this and I'm just listening. And I should have listened even more than I did because it actually did happen. Round one of the 2012 NFR afterwards, especially, I had a lot of like Facebook messages, text messages asking me if, if that was Jackal or what, what horse were you riding tonight? And I didn't ever really tell anybody. And mainly the, the reason I didn't was because of how I felt. Like the, the whole lead up of the reason I did ride him there and did buy him I was almost a little bit embarrassed to even to say because I thought it sounded terrible listening to me say it or think it, but it was it was just truly how I felt, and so I didn't really want to say anything to anybody because I knew I'd get asked, and I'd I'd get asked, you know, what what made you think of him, or why him, and I didn't want to say because I didn't want to lie about it, and I didn't want to tell the truth about it, so I just thought. I mean, they'll, they'll eventually see or know which horse it is, so I'll just leave it at that until then. And um, that was, that was kind of how it went. And then I win the first round, and I remember the first thought I had was like, sweet, I got 18000 back. So I'm thinking now he costs this, so I would definitely would pay that for him, so now we're good to go. And, you know, I think I got, I got to throw seven times that year, and... It was probably the best seven steers I've ever healed. And I know, I mean, it's the best I've ever healed or probably ever will heal at the NFR. And it was, it was all because of him. And it basically, I feel like I have even less to do with it than I probably should just because of the fact of, it just was wrote out like a script, you know, exactly how I thought it was gonna go or would go is exactly how it went. And, you know, it's just, it, does, it, it makes me feel like it doesn't really discredit it for me, but it makes me feel like it was going to happen regardless of what I did, which I'm fine with that. I feel like I did make the decision to buy him, so I feel like I'm more proud of myself for pulling the trigger and actually going through with it and taking a chance when I was scared to death to take the chance because of his age and it was a lot of money and I needed the money. so. That was that was a lot bigger feat for me than everything that happened afterwards. That was all easy once I made the decision to actually buy him. So um, now looking back on it, it was, I would have regretted it so much if I would have not done it. So, and the the only reason I say all that is because I feel like now I'm the old guy. Now I'm Alan Bach talking to all the young kids out there who are scared to spend too much money or think I, I don't have the money to do that. Well. You'll, I mean, you're going to regret it one day if you don't do it. So that's, that was the reason I wanted to say that, you know, that part of the story is if, if this is what you want to do for a living, if you think you need X horse 
pull the trigger, the money doesn't matter. There's, there's things out there that's more important than money. And I spent my whole life wanting to win the world. And if I would have passed up the chance that I thought was going to get it for me, I would have never forgave myself. So I can, I could work at the store and make more money. So I would have just done that, I guess. Now looking back, you can't ever, you're not going to have a chance to win a gold buckle. Some people never get one. And so if you think there's something that is going to give you a chance, then you have to do it or you'll regret it until the day you die. I had so much confidence in him that I just assumed that I was going to do my part. So it, it was, it was a, it was a great feeling to know that, like, or I feel like I almost had an advantage. Like, if I was on him, I just knew I was going to do my part. Whether I was or wasn't, he made me believe that. So that, that's half the battle, you know. So when you have something like that, it, like, I, I didn't ever feel like it made me, like, a cocky or arrogant feeling. I just knew that if the steer turned, I was going to catch two feet just because of where he was going to get me to and he was gonna make me catch. That's just, whether it was true or not, that's what I believed, and so it ended up being true more than not, I feel like, so. I can't even really describe the, the amount of confidence or the feeling that I had, you know, that, that he gave me every time I rode him somewhere that, that it was gonna go good, you know, so it, I just had a level of respect and, and love for him that I'll probably never have again. Jade, with Caleb Driggers on the head side, placed in three rounds after that first one. Then they won round 10, sealing Jade's gold buckle. The, the 10th round of the 2012 NFR, we had to win the round. We knew that going in to have a chance. And then we had to get to fifth in the average. And there was two of three certain teams that had to get in no time for us to do that. So we were the third to last team, I guess. And so those two teams, or those three teams were gonna go before us. So really, I mean, our fate was not in our hands for most of the team roping that night. You know, we didn't, we didn't know that, okay, we have a chance now until maybe two teams before us go. And so two of the three teams do get a no time. And I remember sitting over there, I, I didn't wish bad on anybody. I, I was just assuming we're not going to have a chance, so we're going to try to win the round. That's my whole game plan the whole day, the whole time leading up to it. I'm not even really, I can't say I wasn't thinking about having a chance, but I really wasn't truly thinking about we were going to have a chance because all they had to do was get a time. So I'm thinking there's no way, they've obviously got enough times already, there's no way anybody's going to probably mess up, so I'm not even, I just kind of wrote it off. And so it was, it was kind of a crazy feeling because now all of a sudden two teams, I went from riding it off to two teams before I go, like, hey, I have a chance to win the world right here if I win the go round. And so it was like, even though we'd been penciling it out for however old I was at the time, 25 years, it was like it just got thrown at me two teams before I'm up, hey, you got a chance to win the world now, so go. And I remember, like, we kind of looked at each other at the same time and we're like, holy cow, like, this, that actually happened. So then it turned into there wasn't like the nerves part of it kind of went away because I'm like this is gonna I just was convinced it was gonna happen because I was on the horse that I was convinced I was gonna have to ride to win it and then the two teams that have to miss of the three they miss and in ways that they usually don't and so it was kind of like man we're gonna win the day money and we're gonna win it so 
just and he's the reason that I had that feeling is I guess is what I'm trying to say is that that horse was the whole reason that I had all these thoughts and on another horse I would have you know tried to be as confident as I can but I if I have to tell the truth I can't say that I would have truly believed like hey this is going to happen and say it and actually believe it and so having him and going through that whole situation I, I truly believe that he had everything to do with it because that was the best I ever healed there and just everything everything about it and everything that happened all of the thoughts like pre were because of just the fact that I got to have him and ride him there so I would have to give him you know other than the credit you have to give to your partner and the whole year the rest of it goes all to him to me jackal's role in jade's first gold buckle is far from the only thing that stands out to corkill about the dun horse's life his personality his heart and his grit are what set jackal apart to the three-time world champ uh, jackal just as a horse was it was pretty crazy he he was probably the coolest horse that i've ever been around in my life just because he was he really was human-like. Like he, the stuff that he would do, if you didn't know better, you would actually think that he knew what you were doing or talking about or saying about him, you know? He, uh, like he would bite the chain on his gate. Like if I caught another horse that was by him or with him and didn't catch him, when I would lead the other one away and shut the gate, he would start biting at the chain and like bobbing his head up and down like he did. Like after a run, he would do the same kind of thing. And he, he was just, he was funny. Like when you practiced on him, he was bad in the box. He would try to run off. He'd pull your arm off running down the arena. Would run by if you didn't turn him in. Like, almost not worth practicing on just because he, you literally would make your arm sore just pulling your arm off the whole time. But it was almost just like him having fun. You know what I mean? Like, you could, he would do just different stuff. And then when you would go to a roping or a rodeo, he was completely different. Like, he would back in there like a calf horse to stand in the corner, look right at the chute, and never messed up while I had him, which I had him a year and a half. And I'd got to see him, you know, his whole career. I actually, when I grew up, I was 12 years old when Corey Koontz rode him at the NFR the first time. And so he, he was a horse that I just grew up my whole life getting to see on TV and see him, you know, at the BFI and the places that I went, you know, as I was growing up. And he's probably the most famous hill horse that I've, you know, of our time. So he was just, he's almost like a celebrity. You know what I mean? Like people, Everywhere that I rode him, I didn't ride him anywhere where somebody didn't come up and want to pet him or knew his name or, you know, I mean, knew something about him, just wanted to come take a picture with him. And I've never had another horse like that. So that part was pretty cool just to just to know that he did. Because the, the thing I love about horses is they can't talk. So if if a horse gets to a point like he did, that means that whatever they did was obviously good enough that people took notice and paid attention to it. And so the fact that that many people knew about him and knew his whole story and wanted to take pictures with him I thought was was pretty cool for his sake. When I started working for Spinduin, which was the predecessor to the team roping journal here in this business, that was right about the time Jade broke out Jackal at the NFR and then at all the rodeos the next year. I never saw Jackal standing in a parking lot without his soft ride equine comfort boots on. They really helped Jade get that life, that last little bit of life that was so important out of Jackal. And I really think they were a part of helping his career extend throughout those last few years with Jade and Jim Ross. So guys, check out softridebootscom 
These boots are amazing for stabling, transporting, therapy, and recovery. The deep gel in the Soft Ride Orthotics reaches into the crevices of a horse's foot, massages the frog, and helps create a natural pumping motion that circulates the blood as the horse shifts his weight on its feet. That keeps the blood flowing, increases circulation, and decreases inflammation. These boots are so much more than just a cushion for your horse, but they are that too. They really help with the inflammation. They help keep horses going, especially for team rovers who are constantly parking on parking lots, hard parking lots, um, stabling in tough conditions at different ropings. You just gotta check out softrideboots.com. These people have been our partners for years. They are one of the first people who jumped on board with the score and helped sponsor it and give you these kind of episodes. So thank you again to Softride Boots. Check out softrideboots.com for more. Despite the years of hard use, Jackal's legs have held up surprisingly well. The grade gelding was somewhere in his early to mid-twenties by the time Jade had him, but he didn't take too much TLC to keep going. When I had a Jackal the whole time, actually, he was, uh, I never really had any problems with him. Like, he, he had uh, a little bit of ring bone in his coffin joint, so it, like his foot on top never got big or whatever, but if, if it was cold in the morning or if it was ever kind of wet, um, he might be a little bit off, but he would warm out of it, like at the rodeos and stuff in the parking lot. And before I roped, like I usually kept soft ride boots on him, and uh, I gave him some Prevacox. Like I didn't even give it to him right off the bat. I probably waited six months, and then when I kind of figured him out and kind of knew his deal, then I started giving him that. And other than that, I had zero problems with him the whole time. While Jade had just bought Jackal for the NFR in 2012, he kept riding him throughout the 2013 year. Uh, after 2012, after the NFR, I rode him, actually I rode him quite a bit. I ended up, I rode him uh, that winter, I rode him at some of the rodeos and then uh, the George Strait and then I rode him, it seemed like I rode him more than I was planning on riding him just because it was kind of one of those feelings like well he's already this old and he's sound so what am I saving him for, you know. And uh, I made the, that was the only time I ever made the, the Ram National Circuit Finals and uh, I ended up, I won that on him that year. And then I rode him, you know, periodically throughout the whole year. I rode him the first round at the NFR, and that was the year that uh, I got my fingers in the dally and kept my hand pretty bad. And uh, I switched to my other horse because he was just a little bit more forgiving. And uh, that ended up being, that's the last year I ever ran on him, was the first one at the NFR that year. And then uh, that next winter, Jim Cooper had been asking me about selling him uh, a little bit before the NFR even. And I hadn't really even given it any thought. I just told him I didn't want to sell him. And then uh, after that all happened, and I had a couple other horses at the time that, um, or I guess a, a better explanation is I didn't really have anywhere that I would ride him that I didn't have something else that I could ride at those spots at the time. And uh, Jim was kind of needing a horse, and I just thought if he wasn't going to get used as much as he liked getting used, then I might as well let somebody else use him you know like he because he, he was a horse that you could it was kind of weird it sounds kind of cliche to say but he's probably the only horse I've ever had that I personally got to see that he actually did love team roping I think or I don't think I know that I've, I mean it was pretty clear like just by his mannerisms and the stuff he did um, you could it was pretty obvious that he loved what he did and I didn't want him to not get to do it so I went ahead and sold him to Jim. Jim Ross Cooper was roping with Brandon Beers in 2014. Brandon had two of the fastest best head horses going. Both eventual AQHA PRCA Horses of the Year, 
in TiVo and Jewel. With Jim's other good horse, Z, down with injury, at about 24 years old, Jackal got the call at nearly every rodeo Jim entered. Um, getting to see what, what Jim, because like, you know, when I bought him, I bought him right before the NFR. And it was more money than I'd ever paid for a hill horse. And he was the oldest one. And I didn't know if he was sound. And I, I was just trying to think of anything I could think of to make myself not sound crazy for doing it. Um, I, had, I had the thought that, you know, if he could just live for the next two weeks, then hopefully I would at least win half my money back or my money back or just really trying to think of anything I could come up with to, to make myself feel better about it. And then I thought if he does make it, well then I'll still have the horse. So when Jim bought him, you know, so then he makes it another year and a half. And when Jim bought him, well I guess, I'll, let me back up. I remember when Alan Bach rode him in 2006 at the NFR. Uh, that next winter at Odessa, I just happened to be, I was talking to him and uh, he ended up, he was started to talk to somebody else and I was still standing there and I heard him say, if he could buy that horse, he would buy him for whatever it cost. And I remember at, even at that time, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, man, that's, that seems crazy. Cause I was a rookie at the time. I'm 18 years old, 2006, don't know anything. And I remember thinking, man, that, that seems crazy to hear that guy say that because that horse is old. You know, at the time I'm thinking he's 15 or whatever it was, I'm thinking that's old already. And didn't know if he was sound then because maybe he did get hurt and had to take a little time off right before that. And I just remember thinking like, man, I need to, if that's what the guys that I'm trying to be like, think like, apparently I need to change the way I think. Or I just thought it was crazy that he would say that, that he would buy him. Well then you fast forward six years after that and here I am and I'm fixing to buy him for more money than I've ever paid for a heel horse. And so I'm thinking then, I'm like, man, who's the crazy one now? Obviously I'm the crazy one because I thought that about him six years ago. Well then a year and a half after that, here's Jim Cooper gonna buy him. And I'm like, man, this horse is, he obviously is Im immortal because people still wanna buy him at his age knowing that you know the end is obviously gonna be near just because and at that time, then he he was a little bit sore. He was sore then than the whole time I had him, and Jim went to riding him everywhere, because I was thinking when he bought him, you know, he was going to buy him kind of for the same reasons I did, you know, for the NFR or the George Strait or you know the littler setups in the winter time. Well, then the next thing you know, Jim's riding him every steer that he runs, and he wins Cheyenne on him, which is the hardest rodeo probably on a horse that there is, because the score is really long, and uh, there's nowhere to go to the left and so the healer has to really pretty much score with your header and here's Jim on a 24 year old heel horse and he wins the rodeo on him so that that seemed like to me like if you if you say that there's ever a moment that like people realize or somebody realizes something I feel like that was kind of the day where if anybody was out there that didn't really believe anything that people talked about about that horse that was kind of the defining moment of like okay we get it now you know what I mean like because just because of the talk that you know, people that you didn't hear talk about him, like Bulldoggers were talking about him, Calf Rubbers were talking about him. And that was, you know, so for me, that was kind of the day that everybody realized that, like, man, this is the greatest hill horse probably of all time. That win at Cheyenne got Jackal yet another trip back to Vegas. It would be his last. There, Jackal carried Cooper to two go-around placings and a round 10 win that couldn't have been written any sweeter. I don't want to get myself away on this because in, when Jackal made his last run at the NFR, I was the last team out that night. 
and at the time I didn't I, I knew quite a bit about the situation but I thought that I had to catch to win the world or I knew I had to catch to win the average and I wanted to do that and then obviously we'd win the world too so not a time to probably not be thinking about that and when they go Boyd Paul Hamus was only talking about him like I'm sure he did announce their names but if he did I didn't hear it and he just goes to rattling off all these stats about Jackal and because there was kind of this joke between like a few of us that we just thought that he was going to drop dead like we didn't think he was going to get old and have to retire like we thought he was going to be exactly how he was and one day just like Walt did like he's just going to drop dead and so the same exact type of feeling I had when I bought him or the reason I wanted to buy him I had the same exact reel of a feeling when he's talking because you can't hear hardly anything back there and I'm in a spot where you really can't hear anything and I can hear everything he's saying all of a sudden and all I could think about is like he's gonna drop dead he's gonna die when he gets out the back end like and, I, and I'm truly believing that so I'm thinking like I don't care what's going on I'm like somebody's got to get back there like he's gonna die that's all I'm thinking about and so then they go in there 4-1 and win in the day money. And at the time, the situation that the people were in after him, like they're going to win the day money. And I know that. So I'm like, wow, like last round, he's winning it. You're going to win it. I'm like, he's going to die. Like he's going to die. So <laughs> that was kind of a hard moment for me because I really didn't think it was going to happen. I was worried. I was really worried. Which, see, I mean, it sounds weird to say it even now. Like, I, I remember thinking then it seemed weird that, like, I'm that worried about it when it hasn't even happened. But just the, everything that we had talked about and how we thought it was going to go down, and now all of a sudden it probably is his last NFR. And, of course, winning the day money, I'm just like, I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen tonight. Like, if he's going to go down like we think he is, tonight's the night, is, is what I was thinking. And... The, the weird part to me is that I thought all, I mean, I thought so many things in a decent amount of, or not very much time, and now I'm up all of a sudden, and I'm, I'm not ready. Like, now they're opening the gate, yelling at me to get in the box, and I'm, like, trying to get my rope ready, because I was literally just sitting there, having my rope on my horn, and I'm just trying to look kind of down towards the back end, trying to see if I can see, and because the 10th round, the team that wins the go-round doesn't take the victory lap, the average winners do. And so they don't wait really right there where they do, if, like, you know, on the other nine nights if you win the round. So I'm like bending down, trying to look up the tunnel as far as I can see, can't see nothing. Like I'm thinking there'll be a herd of people running down there if he, if he dies when he gets out the back end. So, I mean, I feel, I feel like an idiot saying all this, but I mean, might as well tell the truth, I guess. And that's really what I was thinking. So uh, I guess, good to know that he didn't once I got out the back but so that was a relief uh, but I've never really told anybody that like exactly what I was thinking at that moment because I mean now I guess it's enough time that I didn't want my partner to know what I was thinking at the time because I doubt I'm gonna say he wasn't thinking about that uh, but I got through it we caught and no harm no foul but even after the run like I mean, everything that happened and what I should have been thinking, I was still thinking about that. So I didn't really get to, I mean, I did enjoy the moment, but not in the actual moment as much as I would have on, say, a normal day. So that was, that was kind of 
I guess that was the moment for me that I realized how much I actually did care about that horse, you know, so. It was a little bit, you know, it dang sure tug at your heart a little bit to see in the 10th go round, and it's not an easy go round, him to just get up around one and just pull back and win the, I think they won the round in the very last round that, that he was ever competed on there. And so that's, that was a pretty cool deal, pretty good way to finish off a, a great career. Nobody doubts that there was something in Jackal, call it heart, grit, or God-given ability, that made him the legend that he was. He had to have heart because, you know, he got to the point, there's no telling how many miles that horse went, you know, because there was a stretch when Michael Jones had him that that was the only horse he had, and he rode him everywhere. And so the miles, you know, the, the steers he had run on him, he, if he didn't have heart, he wouldn't have made it half the time that he did. And, and I do truly believe just, just based off stuff that he did that no horse that I've ever had or been around did the same way, you could just tell that he, he loved doing it because he, like I've never had a horse that liked really to be practiced on, like a good one. And if you didn't take him out there and practice on him when you went to practice, he would probably hurt himself by kicking the fence or trying to get out of his pen. And that, you know, it sounds kind of crazy to say that, but there was, when people were at my house, I would do it just to show them that I wasn't lying and wasn't as crazy as they thought. And he, he did it every time. So there was, there was people that got to see it and everybody that did see it when I had him, like they just stopped and kind of looked like, man, he really does do that. And it was, it was just weird. Like it, he was almost like a person. He really was like a person to me. And there was days where like I would be saddling him or whatever and you could just kind of tell the, just the look in his eye and just the kind of, the, just the aura around him. Like he just, like he just was on the same page, you know, and he just knew what was going on. And kind of, I mean, you could count on him, you know what I mean, no matter what. If he was a little sore or something like that, it, it literally didn't matter. Like you knew when you got on when you saddled up, he was he was gonna do his job and he was ready to do it, and that was just that's the way it was, you know. So uh, it goes a long ways just having something like that that you can, because you can't hardly count on anything or anybody. And I truly believe that I can count on him, you know, every time I got on him. So uh, to me, that that really meant a lot, and it's just kind of a cool like bond or relationship that because I feel like not if people couldn't talk to each other, I feel like there would be a lot better relationships in the world because you actually have to pay attention and care. So the way we are with our horses, if, if I don't pay attention to what he likes or doesn't like, then I would never know, you know, because we can't talk to him. So, uh, but if there ever was one, it would be him probably that could talk. So he, he was kind of the, he was like a horse for beginners to figure out how to take care of your horse because he let you know everything he liked and didn't like, and he was a pretty easy book to read. He was a cool horse, the toughest horse I've ever been around in my life. I mean, as far as, I don't know how, how to say it, but as far as like just, just really tough and uh, you could run quite a few on him and he, he would just take it and uh, just kind of a willing horse as far as he, he wanted to be great. He was just a great, a great horse, one of the greatest horses of all time in my opinion, if not the greatest. And um, I don't know, he, he was, I was just really lucky to get to ride him when I did and uh, like I said, there will never be another jackal. You know, like his trademark to me is when he stops, you know, he always puts his head down. He would always put, break at the pole. And uh, there's not very many horses that'll do that and be that strong on the horn. 
And that, that's just a great sign of being broke and started the right way and um, just an awesome horse. You know, it, it's funny how uh, I never really felt like I couldn't live without Jackal. And I had him for quite a few years and he went from that horse that, you know, kind of just made me mad a lot and I fought with him and he wasn't great to practice on and he wasn't he wasn't what I would think of as even the best horse I've ever had but it's funny how once I sold him the the different things that come about in the in the guys that did own him after me and what he meant to each one of them because he played a big part of kind of uh, changing the direction of their careers, changing what, you know, kind of the complexion of everything that was going on in their lives at the time, and uh, basically made each one of us very successful when we had him. And I will say that, and I've always said, he was a gamer, you know, he just, always seemed like didn't matter who owned him always come up big and he was a big money horse and I don't really think horses understand whether we're making a run just in the practice pen or whether we're making a run in front of 18 to 20,000 people and it's for a whole lot of money I really feel like the horse is just I think they can feel the crowd because their nerves come up but I don't think they understand that, okay, this steer is worth 100,000 and that other one was worth zero. You know, they just, I think they just know they're either the kind of horse that wants to do their job or they're the kind of horse that is always trying to find a way out. And I think he was the kind of horse that always wanted to please, always wanted to do his job, and he always wanted to do it basically a good word is violently because he became a horse that could literally just tear the back end off of a steer and I don't know if that's a good visual or the right way to put that but I felt like it didn't matter how big the steer was if I set the shot up right I didn't have to worry about the steer jerking me I would jerk the steer back and get a good flag and I know Jade uh, when he got him and the role that that Jackal played in his life and winning the world and all of that was a was an instrumental time um, I know he came in at a good spot Big Al never owned him but he was able to step on him and compete at the NFR on him and uh, and won a world title and so each, each one of us had a little bit different dynamic with how we, what our relationship was with him and what age we got him at and then what he did for us as far as our life pertains kind of going through the years. I would, I would say that the part that he played in, you know, in so many people's careers is what, what he did different than probably most any horse that's ever been is it didn't matter who rode him or what you did he worked the same or worked good for everybody. So that, like to me, when somebody talks about, you know, people or animals or anything being great, it can't, you can't just be one tracked and you can't, you can't go for one year and be a one hit wonder and then be called great. You know, he went for, 
he went to more NFRs than most people do and had however many people ride him and everybody that rode him did good on him. You know, so to me, if there was, if there was an example of, of what would be great, I would say that, that that would be it, that he just was that versatile for everybody that, that ever got on him. That, I mean, if a girl could get on him and heal, an old guy could get on him and heal, and I could get on him and heal, and he was going to do good for all of us. So that, that goes a long way for, for his career and just, you know, just about him. Eventually, Jackal's legs and feet gave in, and Jim Ross made the decision to humanely euthanize the horse in December of 2018. When the roping world found out via story at teamropingjournal.com, ropers across the globe shared tributes and memories of what Jackal meant to them, and the news had stopped Corkill right in his tracks. I don't know if there will ever be one like him as far as just how famous he got, you know, just because it was just his attitude. Like, he just had a certain, I guess, swag would be the word about him that I've never seen another horse really in general. Maybe Walt, the head horse, was like that. And uh, and Jackal was just, and then them as a team, getting to watch them as a team for however many years was was something that we probably will never get to see again. But uh, I, I've, if I had to guess right now, I would doubt that there will ever be one that is as cool as him probably. If there ever is another Jackal, you can guarantee we will be the ones telling you about him someday. But until then, stand by, and we look forward to telling you more great stories just like this one. Don't forget, this episode, this awesome kind of exploration of this cool horse jackal, and then the later years of jackal's career, were brought to you by Soft Ride Boots. Check out softridebootscom to learn more. Thanks for listening.